Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter number 14. Genesis chapter number 14. I always appreciate uh, Andy's care and concern in our song selections. I hope that your heart was blessed and your heart was prepared for hearing the Word of God as a result of joining corporately together in worship. Were you encouraged this morning with those songs? So much truth in them this morning. I pray that um, it was not just through vain repetition or habit, but uh, as we come to seeing that we are mindful of the words and our hearts are reflective of it. Genesis chapter number 14, titled this morning's message is a godly response to blessing. A godly response to blessing. We uh, finished most of the first portion of Genesis chapter number 14. If you'll remember, we had the kings of the east coming against the kings from the south. And um, ultimately, the kings from the east defeating um, everybody as they made this, this path to um, basically snuff out this rebellion that was represented here in this first portion of, of chapter 14. And uh, they have taken Lot captive, and Abram has gotten word of this, and he has gone after with his 318 men. He has pursued them. He has, by night, overcome these kings of the east, and he is now coming back uh, with the spoils of war and victory. Okay, so that's just a little catch-up with where we're at, and here we are in this last portion of Genesis 14, and we have the king of Sodom and Melchizedek coming to meet Abram in this valley, and Melchizedek will provide Abram a blessing. And so this morning we're going to look again at this godly response to blessing. If you remember last week, it was really all about this topic and this theological term that Andy even introduced again in our, our worship service this morning, but it was the theological term of the sovereignty of God. Do you remember it? I know that was just last week, but uh, if you remember with me, reflect back on that message and all four of our points anchored on these different aspects that we learned out of the first portion of this chapter about the sovereignty of God. We observed how God is present, how he is working, and ultimately his will is being accomplished in this world, even when the circumstances we are experiencing are telling us a different story. As we close out the chapter this morning, we're going to observe how Abram's acknowledgement once again of the sovereignty of God will shape his response, both in unfavorable, the first portion of 14, and now in the favorable circumstances. You see, in the unfavorable circumstances, Abram trusted God and acted in faith, even in the midst of, do you remember this word, chaos? Complete disorder and uncertainty is what we saw in these first few verses of Genesis chapter number 14, and Abram's faith was resolved. It was settled. And he stepped out in confidence, knowing that the victory was already his. But also, we're going to observe this morning that Abram's, that same faith to trust God in the unfavorable circumstances, will once again now act in faith. Even now those chaotic circumstances attempt to make Abram the champion of this story. I love that aspect of 
attempting to make Abram the champion of this story. See, Abram, because he's living in light of God's sovereignty, is going to refuse to be the champion of this story. When all the circumstances, when all the praise, when all the blessing, when all the spoils, when all the wealth is at his fingertips, Abram is choosing to have a godly response even in the midst of blessing. So by way of reminder, what is the sovereignty of God? You'll remember with me last week that we borrowed from R.C. Sproul and defined the sovereignty of God as the free exercise of His supreme authority in executing and administrating His eternal purposes. So based on that context, what's the big idea of our text this morning? Verses 17 through 24, this blessing of Melchizedek. What is our big takeaway, our big thought, our big idea? It's this, because God is over all things, that's His sovereignty, we must recognize that any blessing that is to be realized in our lives is only brought about by the undeserved favor of the Most High God. Let me state that one more time. Because God is over all things, again, that's His sovereignty, right? We must recognize that any blessing that is to be realized in our lives is only brought about by the undeserved favor of the Most High God. You see, this morning, there is nothing that we can do to bring about the blessing of God. There's nothing that we can do on our own. There's no action that we could take. There's no work that we can accomplish that could produce on our own the blessing of God. I can't manufacture, manufacture blessing or else blessing would cease to be a blessing at all, right? If I do something to earn a blessing... That is complete contrary to the very definition of a blessing. It's undeserved. It's unmerited. It is just bestowed upon us despite ourselves. So then, blessing is only rightly understood as the sovereignty of God is recognized and acknowledged in one's life. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever been in a situation where you've been recognized? Praise has come into your life for whatever reason. There's a blessing that's bestowed on you. And you know what? It feels pretty good to be praised, doesn't it? It feels pretty good to get a blessing. And if you're not careful, we can come to the conclusions that this blessing that I have received is because of something that I have done. That blessing goes to our head, right? In our human nature, we think, you know what? I deserve that blessing. You know what? I'm a pretty good guy. You know what? I'm serving the, serving the Lord. You know what? I'm certainly not as bad as this person or that person. And so, you know what? I, I deserve that blessing and that pride and that arrogant arrogance and that selfishness can so quickly rise up in our life, can it not? And instead of like Abram fighting against the glory, and fighting against being the champion of his own circumstances, we welcome them with open arms. And we become the king of our own life, the God, essentially, with the little g, of our own lives. Instead of God being sovereign over all things and executing his eternal purposes, and us recognizing and acknowledging his supreme authority over all things, 
we put ourselves in the place of God and we assert our own sovereignty in our own life and we begin to make inappropriate conclusions about ourselves and about God. So as you can imagine, this concept of blessing is understood in many different ways, both within and outside the church. Can you guys give testament to that? Have you heard and seen of inappropriate and inaccurate, even heretical views of this idea of the blessing of God on one's lives? Yeah, absolutely. You don't have to look too far in our society, in our culture, to find these misconceptions, these inappropriate conclusions about the blessing of God and even heretical theology concerning it. So our goal this morning is to lay a foundation of understanding of this concept of blessing of God as we observe it right here in Abram's life in Genesis 14. And our goal is that we rightly understand the blessing of God. And this will serve us well, not only in our text here today, but as Dave launches out into this formal Abrahamic covenant that we see next week in Genesis chapter number 15, us understanding how God operates through blessing rightly and biblically, right from the Scriptures, will be very important for us. It'll be a foundational understanding as we continue to work our way through Genesis. We're going to see Abraham continuing to be blessed, not just back in chapter 12, right here in chapter 14. We're going to see it in chapter 17 and 22 and beyond as we see Abraham continuing to circle back in his relationship with God with this concept of blessing. So in an effort to properly receive and respond to blessing when it is present in our life, our goal this morning is just to observe four different aspects of a godly response to bless to the blessing of God as seen in these final few verses of chapter number 14. So point number one is this. Deliverance is always a result of God's undeserved blessing. Deliverance is always a result of God's undeserved blessing. As we look at our text this morning, we're going to see Lot and his people and his possessions be delivered from the hands of his captors. And that comes by way of God using Abraham to go after these four kings of the east and to defeat them in battle. So let's read our our passage this morning, verses 17 through 24 of chapter number 14. After his return from the defeat of Ketelaramur and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. Verse 19, and he blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram, 
said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Verse 24, I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. Let's open a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your love, your grace, your mercy in our lives. Father, I pray this morning that as we come to your word and we see Abram in this atmosphere of blessing and we see how he anchors his heart once again on the sovereignty of God, I pray that we would learn from that example. But Father, we know that Abram is not the hero of this story. It was not his own victory, but it was you who worked in and through Abram with just a small subset of men to do an incredible work and conquer the army of four kings, the multitudes that came with them. You restored the possessions and the people as they were. So, Father, I pray this morning that we would rest in that same sovereignty that Abram rested in, in these days. That as we bridge this gap of time and we, we look at these timeless truths that are presented here in Genesis 14 and we desire to make application into our own life and our own context and our own society, Father, I pray that we would be hearers that would be pleasing in your sight. That we would realize that this is your word and that we would be mindful of its impact and its implications on our life. That we would lean into this conversation this morning, Father, and that you would be glorified. That you alone would be magnified and that you alone would get the praise for everything that is said and done here this morning. Father, we pray to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. I referred to some misconceptions concerning this idea of blessing in my opening remarks. And I'd like to take a few moments as we work our way expositionally through this text, as we come upon opportunities to speak into some inappropriate, some inaccurate, even heretical theologies and conclusions about God that are present in our day. As elders, we're going to take the opportunity to hit a strategic T.O., and talk about that, right? Talk about how the fallacies of, of, of that day can represent itself in new ways and new forms in our own day, right? And so uh, there's opportunity for us to hopefully, by God's grace, recalibrate our idea of God, our thinking of God, and anchor our mind on the truth of who He really is as stated in Scripture, so if you'll remember with me, all the way back to our introduction of our Genesis series. Now I know I'm really asking a lot right there. It's been a few months, right? Uh, but if you'll remember with me, we spent what probably seemed to be uh, an excessive amount of time in talking about how we were to approach this book of Genesis. Do you remember that just maybe a little bit? Okay, I see maybe a couple heads nodding, so that's good. We were spending time in speaking to the how and the approach and the interpretation of the book of Genesis. And we stated that we would deploy a literal, historical, and grammatical hermeneutic. 
which is simply what? A method of interpretation. That's right. Very good. Why do we spend so much time in defining our interpretive approach? We did so because there is great danger in misinterpreting the Word of God. How then we interpret the Word of God shapes our belief of God, which is our what? Our, our what? Our, it's our theology, right? The study of God, our belief of God. So how we interpret the word of God shapes our belief of God, which is our theology. Our theology then shapes our actions. Our theology shapes how we interact with the world. It shapes how we ultimately interact and relate to, to God even. And so then your hermeneutic matters. Your theology matters because it will absolutely impact the conclusions you make concerning God, this world, and your existence in it. We spent much time in these opening chapters of Genesis in speaking to uh, the heretical views of theology, theistic evolution, and so on and so forth, that as a result of inaccurately interpreting the first few chapters of Genesis, people have gone way off and their beliefs, and ultimately their conclusions, and ultimately their view of themselves in this world. And so this certainly has huge implications. With that said, I can think of no greater heretical misinterpretation of Scripture in our day than that of the prosperity gospel movement. The health, wealth, and prosperity preaching, the name it and claim it, the blab it and grab it theology is a lie, get this, straight from the pit of hell. It is damning thousands and thousands of souls every single day. This prosperity gospel was founded and rooted right here in America, and guess what? It's being exported to countries all over the world. And individuals, real souls, are placing their hope not in the finished work of Jesus Christ, but in their works and their ability to earn enough faith to garner the blessing and the prosperity of God on their life. And it's a big deal. And so friends, I know we come from a very conservative strand of evangelical Christianity. You say, Eric, I get it. <laughs> I don't believe health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, but, but do we? In our A&I group last week, we talked about how many times the, the subtle and sly nature of this crafted, twisted, and distorted, just a little bit of truth, sheep's and wolves' clothing, how it is, it is impacting how we believe and relate to God. Think about it. When I go through long seasons of trial and temptation, do I not begin to doubt the sovereignty of God? So wait a second, I'm, I'm Eric Stanley, your, your faithful servant. Uh, why am I experiencing this trial? Why am I experiencing this extended temptation? But yet, we learned last week that God is... The same God, the same sovereign God, both in the unfavorable, chaotic circumstances of life as He is in the smooth seas, the, the calm winds, and the lack of trial. And when blessing comes, He's the same God, the, the same sovereign God in both spectrums there, right? So I wonder, has, 
the health, wealth, and prosperity, that if I really love God and I serve Him with all my heart and I do a lot of good things, that somehow God's blessing in my life will be what? Expected. That ease and, and comfort will come my way as a result of what? Obedience. <clears throat> but is that the message we see from Scripture? Jesus says, if you come after Me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, that cross was a symbol of what? Shame and torment and persecution. So Christ is telling us that in order to follow me, you've got to take up that cross. But guess what? In the midst of that persecution and in the midst of others coming against you, we have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. We have a hope that whether I live or whether I die, I am the Lord's. Right? Though my heart and flesh may fail, I put my confidence in who? the Lord of my salvation. And so we know that we're sojourners. We're aliens. We're just on a journey passing through this life and someday that life will come to an end and we can rest assured that He will hold me fast because He is a good God and He has cared for my deepest need, the need of my sin that has been resolved through the personal work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. But the prosperity gospel gives us a different message. Let me be clear. This prosperity gospel is not just a distortion or a perversion of truth, which it is, but it is also an absolute 100% false gospel, and we must condemn it, not just in our own personal lives, but also in the culture we live in. We should not play footsies with this heretical teaching. We should not take a little bit that, hey, this sounds like a majority of truth, and so I'll take a little piece of that, and I'll believe a little bit of this, and we piece together our own view of God. We should renounce it. And friends, as elders, we not only have the responsibility to call out what we do believe in word and creed and scripture and truth, but we also have a responsibility as a shepherd to call out heresy to call out untruth and to protect the flock that God has entrusted to us as we ourselves are a sheep among sheep, as we recognize and acknowledge Christ as the head of this church. And so friends, this teaching and this idea of prosperity gospel is wreaking havoc in the world that we live in. So why do I bring this up now? This seems slightly out of place for you. Why am I taking so much time this morning to speak to this reality? Because, friends, it's much of the prosperity movement has anchored their core ideologies right here in the blessing of Melchizedek. Next week in the Abrahamic covenant of chapter 15, the prosperity gospel has said, because of these passages, we're going to believe what we want about God. And so they're taking this idea of blessing. They're taking this idea of covenant relationship. They're taking this material offering of blessing from Melchizedek to Abraham out of context and making horrible conclusions about who God is. So on the one hand... Prosperity preachers acknowledge that must of Scripture, much of Scripture is a record of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, which, which it is. That's a positive. But it's the conclusions that are made based on that reality. 
And due to an incorrect hermeneutic interpretation of Scripture, the prosperity gospel will make incorrect conclusions concerning blessing as a whole and the Abrahamic covenant. David Jones, professor of theology at Southeastern Seminary, writes on this topic. In the book, Spreading the Flame, Edward Poussin stated that the prosperity view on the application of blessing in the Abrahamic covenant is this. Christians are Abraham's spiritual children and heirs to the blessing of faith. This Abrahamic inheritance is unpacked primarily in terms of material entitlements. What do I mean by that? So in other words, the prosperity gospel teaches that the primary purpose of blessing and the Abrahamic covenant that will come next week was for God to bless Abraham how? Materially. Don't we see that in our text this morning? Abraham comes back from war. He delivers Lot from his captors. He restores back to Lot the possessions that were taken. And that prosperity, the spoils of that war, is now made available to who? To Abram. So the prosperity gospel would incorrectly conclude that since believers are now Abraham's spiritual children, we have inherited these same material blessings. Kenneth Copeland, a famous prosperity gospel preacher, writes in his book, The Laws of Prosperity, since God's covenant has been established and prosperity is a provision of this covenant, you need to realize that prosperity belongs to you now. We know Kenneth Copeland has been around for decades, but these lies continue to recirculate generation after generation. Do we impose upon the blessing of God as a result of our relationship with Him? Is the blessing of God in physical and material possession really available to you now? The answer to that question is no, that is not a promise that we have in Scripture. The Sermon on the Mount gives us a different perspective to the provision of God. It's a very different thing between wants and needs, right? Jesus Christ reminds us that as God cares for the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, how much more does He care for us? But He tells us, don't take thought about what you eat or what you drink or what clothes you put on your back, but know that He will care for you. Your needs, your provision, but our safety, our life. The safety of our, of our family. Our rights as a Bible-believing American can be taken away at any moment. And that is okay. And God is still sovereign if that were to happen. As we look at across this world, we see Christians in, in China, in other areas of the country that are driven to their basements, that are driven to an underground concept of, of church. Why? Because they risk their very own lives. They risk persecution as a result of following Jesus. So friends, these material possessions are not a right. Can God bless us materially? Can God 
bestow upon us wealth? Can he entrust us as good stewards of these resources to use them for his glory? Absolutely, 100%. He can and he does. Let me be clear. But friends, I want to be careful to recalibrate our minds that in the context of the American dream that we find ourselves at here in the United States of America, that we cannot allow the lines to be blurred around rights and blessings and what we expect in this life. So I don't know about you, but I hear some of these conclusions that this prosperity gospel makes concerning us in our relationship with God, and it seems to be a stretch in this application of the blessing of Abram. However, most prosperity preachers understand the argument against this Old Testament application, so where do they turn? They turn to the New Testament, of course, right? We've, we've got to provide more support, more firepower, so they go, to, they go to Galatians chapter number 3, verse number 14. This is their key reference, and it states this, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So if we stop right there, it sounds like a done deal. The prosperity gospel got it right, did they not? The blessing of Abraham will come to the Gentiles through the person of Jesus Christ. Sounds good. The blessings bestowed upon Abram are primarily material in nature. The prosperity, the prosperity preachers, again, they nailed it. But we know that context absolutely matters. And certainly the rest of a verse matters. So we read on. Galatians chapter number 3, verse number 14 goes on and says, So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So let me read that verse in its entirety. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This verse isn't referring to the material blessings promised to Abram in chapters 12, 14, and 15 and beyond. But rather, Paul in Galatians is clearly reminding the church there of the spiritual blessings of what? Salvation. Their relationship with the Lord. So friends, whether you fully agree with our interpretation of the blessings bestowed upon Abram or not, I would strongly encourage you to do this. Search the scriptures. Pray. Ask the Holy Spirit to guide your understanding of the text so that by his grace, you're able to make right conclusions about God, this world, and your existence in it. So as a reminder, our first point this morning is simply that deliverance is always a result of God's undeserved blessing. Deliverance. Deliverance. Being rid of a trial. The escape of circumstances. The relief of discomfort. Deliverance. Don't we all seek deliverance in our life? Whether it's a besetting sin, whether it's a struggle in your marriage, whether it's a financial hardship, we just desire it to what? Go away. Just, just give me some relief, Lord, please. This weight is too heavy to bear. Have you ever been there before? 
We seek deliverance. Let me be let me be clear, friends. Deliverance is only brought about by the undeserved favor of the Most High God. There's nothing that I can do that somehow can garner and achieve and bring about the deliverance of God. But guess what? He freely offers it. He freely provides us that a way of escape. He promises us that He will never give us anything that we are not able to bear. He gives us the paraclete, the comforter, the counselor. We have the Holy Spirit who is at the throne of grace right now making intercession on our behalf with with groanings that cannot be even uttered. We've been given the body of Christ, fellowship, encouragement, one anothering that He gives us as a means to weather the storms and the trials and the difficulties this life will bring us. In the sound bite type of life, we're looking for a quick relief. We're looking for a quick fix to our problems. And God has other stories. He may have plans for us to endure a trial that we don't understand why. I, I gave the testimony of Emily Shelp last week in regards to her battle with cancer. We have many in our congregation who have gone through and are currently going through long seasons of physical ailment who have gone through long periods of relational hardship. Is God still there? Is He still working? Does He still have a plan? Absolutely. He wants to maximize His glory, both in the unfavorable seasons of life, but also in the favorable seasons of life. God does bring relief. The storm does subside. And His blessing does come in due time. Before we dive, in, dive into the deep end of our content of this blessing, what do we know about this man, Melchizedek, who's present here in our text? What do we know about him? Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 3, gives us a New Testament account of this same story with a couple important nuances that are shared. Don't worry about flipping over to Hebrews. If you'd like to, go ahead, but I'll go ahead and read it for us. Hebrews 7, 1 through 3. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling... The Son of God, He continues a priest forever. Wow. It's interesting, isn't it? We have in our text here this man who seems to just jump on the scene. We don't have any mention of him beforehand. and We have very little mention of him afterwards throughout the entire span of Scripture. But Melchizedek is described as first the king of Salem. Salem will become, in the days ahead, the area that will be known as Jerusalem. So Melchizedek somehow became ruler over this area and is king of of Salem. He's also described as a priest of the Most High God. This is pre-Levitical priesthood system, right? So 
Melchizedek is not involved in that Levitical priest system, but yet he is recognized in his day as a priest of the Most High God. He's also described as the King of Righteousness. And finally, the King of Peace. Another interesting aspect of his existence here that we also see is that he has neither a beginning nor an end and resembling who? The Son of God. Wow. Are you scratching your head at all yet? I don't know about you, but I am. And Melchizedek is an interesting character in the Bible. And there's probably no other character in the Bible that is surrounded with more mystery and uncertainty than that of Melchizedek. As soon as he's in our context here in our passage, he's out of it. It's a quick reference. So what are we to do with this high priest Melchizedek? We simply approach his existence with a what? A literal, historical, and grammatical hermeneutic. Did you see that one coming that time? We're not going to read into his existence as some would like to do. We are going to pull out of Scripture only what we know of Melchizedek as present in Scripture. That is exegesis, not eisegesis. So many would take this view that this should be read as a Christophany. A Christophany is what? A literal appearance of Christ, a bodily appearance of Christ, right? before he was born in the flesh. Many would interpret Genesis 14 in that way, that right here in chapter 14, we have a true Christophany. We know, though, based on our hermeneutic, that we allow Scripture to be interpreted with Scripture. And although Melchizedek functions as a foreshadowing of Christ in his role as Messiah, Melchizedek is not literally the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We know this simply based on the testimony of the passage we just read in Hebrews number 7, that Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. Not that he is the Son of God. So Melchizedek is not a Christophany, but he does serve as a Christological figure. By that I mean we observe, often observe, different characters in the Old Testament that give us a glimpse into the role that the true Messiah, Jesus Christ, will one day play in the history of mankind. Melchizedek in Genesis 14 gives us our first look at this idea of a high priest from whom in their day was able to mediate directly between God and men. So in a sense, Melchizedek serves as this Christological figure foreshadowing the role that Jesus will take as the eternal high priest from whom in our day will allow us direct access to the most high God. So this Christological figure, Melchizedek, there's some um, direct correlations or analogies here between Melchizedek and Jesus Christ. Let's point a couple of them out. Melchizedek first was literally a priest outside of, again, the the Levitical priesthood order. Therefore, he was not a minister of the law of Moses, which would come later. Jesus Christ was the ultimate priest outside of the Levitical priesthood. Therefore, again, not a minister of the law of Moses, but he did fulfill the law of Moses, keeping it in every point. Melchizedek. 
was a king of righteousness, according to the direct translation of his name. It literally means a king of righteousness. Jesus Christ was literally the king of righteousness because he purchased righteousness for us on the cross. Melchizedek was literally the king of peace, as Salem literally means peace. Jesus Christ is the prince of peace who will one day bring a kingdom of Universal peace as he comes and establishes his kingdom once and for all. Melchizedek literally was without record of parents, having neither a beginning nor an end recorded in Scripture. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, having neither beginning nor end, eternally one with the Father and the Holy Spirit and God the Son. So a Christological figure, not a Christophany. So let's look at this actual blessing that Melchizedek offers and delivers to Abram. Let's look at the actual blessing. Verse number 19, and he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of Everything. Melchizedek's blessing first reflects the sovereignty of God. His, meaning God's, supreme authority is being exercised in the events of Genesis chapter number 14. He establishes this reality by appealing to God as creator, and therefore he is the rightful owner of all things in heaven and on earth, right? Do we see that in his blessing here? Melchizedek appeals to God as creator to establish the rightful blessing that he is providing to Abram. There is no one greater. This is Elohim. This is Yahweh, the one that will will be known in the coming chapters as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Secondly, Melchizedek's blessing reflects this core idea of our main point that this victory and the subsequent blessing are the Lord's doing. The victory and the subsequent blessing are the Lord's doing. It was not the creative scheming, the military training, or the raw might that allowed Abram to overcome these kings of the east. These kings of the east that had come to wreak havoc throughout the southern region. No, it was only the most high God that delivered the enemies into the hand of Abram. We say amen to that. Friends, do we not attempt to assert our own sovereignty and our own power and our own wisdom? Don't we often become kids, I've spoke to it before, become a glory robber when it becomes, when the blessing of God becomes known in our life? His character comes through. He is faithful. We weather the storm. We come out on the other side and the ashes of what we think may have been a horrible circumstance or situation. God makes something beautiful out of it. And what do we do? We raise our hand and say, yeah, that was all me. I was something great there. I may not say something that explicit, but certainly in the quietness of our heart, we can attempt to rob the glory of God. So do we live 
and this reality on a daily basis. That victory and the subsequent blessing are the Lord's doing in our own life. Do the praise and the worship and the blessing that we live in, does it reflect the reality of the sovereignty of God in our own life? Do we give testimony to what God has done and what He is doing in our lives? Do we echo the psalmist in Psalm 66, verse 5, Come and see what God has done. He is awesome and His deeds toward the children of men. This is the heart of Abram here in Genesis chapter number 14. This brings us to our, our, our second, our third, and our fourth point. Similarly to what I did last week, I'm actually intentionally going to combine these final few points together as we consider these final points of a godly response to blessing. The reason why I'm packaging the second and the third point together is because that's really how it's represented in our text. We see these final three aspects in the response that Abram gives to the king of Sodom's offer of personal gain. We know the king of Sodom's name. Do we remember it earlier in the chapter? It's Bera, right? So Bera has, has come down with Melchizedek and Abram. They're here in the valley. They brought bread and wine, and Melchizedek has given his blessing. And now the king of Sodom speaks up. Let's pick up at verse number 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But take the goods for yourself. Second point this morning that we're going to look at is giving should always flow from a genuine heart of gratitude. Giving should always flow from a genuine heart of gratitude that's living in the reality of the sovereignty of God, that's recognizing and remembering that victory and the subsequent blessing are the Lord's doing. That produces gratitude in one's heart, knowing that I could not accomplish what God has just done. There's no way in my own wisdom, my own understanding, my own works of my own power that I could bring about and accomplish what God has done here in Genesis 14. And Abram knows that. 318 men, just a step of faith, trusting God, going after four kings of the east and having incredible victory, overtaking them by night. And it is done. It is finished. They have won. Abram knows that he must be grateful for the victory that he has been giving. And what is his response? Abram's response is giving. It is generosity. It is acknowledgement of the work that God has done. At the end of verse 20, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Verse 23, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Abram knows he is the Lord's servant. And as such, he holds everything he has with an open hand. He demonstrates this by giving to Melchizedek. And he does this by holding back potentially his own desires to take on the spoils of victory offered by the king of Sodom. 
So not only should giving always flow from a genuine heart of gratitude, but number three, recognition should always reflect above all else the glory of God. We see this clearly in verse number 23, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. What is Abraham concerned about here in verse 23? Abraham's concerned about the glory of God. Abram is concerned that no one, not the king of Sodom, not Melchizedek, not himself, not any other thing would get the credit for the deliverance and the victory that has come about right here in chapter number 14. Abram knows that the fame of victory is not about himself, but rather he acknowledges the sovereignty of God in this oath or this vow that Andy teed up for us in our time of worship and singing. And he anchors his statements in this core truth that God Most High is possessor of heaven and earth. He desires the honor and credit to be ascribed to no one else but God, to the smallest of details, not even a thread or a sandal strap will be attributed to the provision of someone other than the Lord. I mean, he is taking seriously the glory of God in this situation. He's taking seriously the glory of God in this situation. And so here we have Abram with a raised hand, remembering what God has done. And as Andy Clarified, this is literally the structure of an oath. An upraised hand would be a what? A show of dependence, a show of submission, a show of humility. Abraham then ascribes to who? God the Most High. So it's on the basis of the character of who God is as possessor of heaven and earth, creator of all things, that Abram commits to this type of of serious concern about the glory of God. Are we that concerned about the glory of God in our life? Am I concerned that I get out of the way and, and the smallest of details and that God just use me, work in and through me, let me just be the lump of clay and let the masterpiece be made by the beauty of your artistry? and mold me and make me into what you, whatever you would have me to be? Just a vessel. A vessel in and of itself is, is nothing, but yet in the hand of the Lord, right? So recognition. Thirdly, recognition should always reflect above all else the glory of God. Finally, our final point this morning is this. Humility will always desire the blessing of others before self. Humility will always desire the blessing of humility before self. Do you see how theology has shaped Abram's life? How it has shaped his view about God and ultimately how it has shaped his own character and his own actions here in Genesis chapter number 14, Abram believes above all else that God is sovereign, that he is the most high God possessor of heaven and earth. Therefore, he must give. 
Therefore, he must ascribe all the praise and pursue the glory of God in his life. Therefore, he must come and and welcome humility in his life because he realizes that it is nothing that he has done. And so we see this final verse, verse number 24. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. Abram willing, willingly defers to the needs of and provision of Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre. Who we know were what? As we saw earlier in the chapter, these three men were trusted allies of Abram. He understands the role even of others in his life and he wants to ensure that others are taken care of and not just himself. So friends, this morning we've seen that deliverance is always a result of God's undeserved blessing. We've seen that giving should always flow from a genuine heart of gratitude. We've observed that recognition should always reflect above all else the glory of God. And finally, we see that humility will always desire the blessing of others before self. Four aspects concerning a godly response to blessing in your life. What about you? Do you understand blessing correctly as, re- as represented in Scripture? Maybe this morning you need to lay down an improper view of blessing that has negatively impacted how you relate to God. Maybe the lack of perceived blessing has caused you to become bitter or uncertain of God's care and love for you. Maybe you find yourself obsessed with someone's ability to manufacture blessing by attempting to earn more grace in the eyes of God by what you do, do or how you serve. My prayer for us all this morning is that we would, as the psalmist said earlier, come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of men. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much this morning that you're a good God. Father, as we reflect on our relationship with you, we echo even the testimony of that beautiful song, As Long As You Are Glorified. Will I just praise you in times of plenty and leave you in days of drought? Days of sunshine or days of rain? Will my response be fickle or um, driven by the circumstances that I am, I am experiencing? Father, I pray that no matter what we may be experiencing, whether unfavorable or favorable circumstances, Father, I pray that we would rest in the sovereignty of God. Understanding that you are working your perfect plan out in our life in an effort to maximize your glory in this world. And I pray that we would simply be humble, willing to be used to that end. Father, we pray for fruit this morning. Fruit that would remain. That would not be trampled out or snatched up or snuffed out, but Seeds of your word that would take root in a heart that would grow and bear fruit. We ask these things in your name. Amen.